Talk Retail Ask an Expert Series. I'm one of your co-hosts for today's interview, Chris Walton. And I'm Ann Mazenga. And we are the founders of OmniTalk, the fast-growing retail media outlet that is all about the companies, the people, and the technologies that are coming together to shape the future of retail. Or as some of us like to say, and the media organization that focuses on tomorrow today. Some of us. Some of some us. Of us yes, and yeah. that joke will never get old. But and our next guest likely needs no introduction at all. Yes, And that is because he has been on our show, I think, Ann, quite possibly more times than anyone in OmniTalk history. I don't know that that's a verifiable fact, yes. but I think that is the case. So I am pleased to introduce Placer AI's SVP of Marketing, Ethan Chernofsky. Ethan is here once again to discuss the five biggest strategic questions that he thinks are staring retailers in the face to start 2024. Ethan, how you doing today? You you take a little victory lap there on that on that little intro? Yeah, this is like my my Steve Martin, you know, whatever six timers club. And yes. uh and I just feel like next time I want to do the intro because I I do think I have it memorized at this stage. I think you, you could. And not to <laughs> knock you down any, but Chris did compare you to putting on an old shoe before we got onto this. <laughs> so it yes, is nice right. to have I you. You're, you're, you're just I resemble warm, that remark, Ed. I resemble warm, that remark. A warm and comfortable guest, like putting on an old shoe. I would say some other things like a, your favorite pair of jeans or your a favorite sweater. thing, a cozy cardigan, yes. but no, you are our old shoes that we love putting on <laughs> Ethan. I'm now your old shoe, but over time I might hit cozy cardigan level. <laughs> <laughs> my God, we oh my are God. getting off the rails. Uh, before the audience um, leaves us here, if you have questions for Ethan, you don't know him as well. You want to know about his cozy cardigan and old shoe collection. Whatever your questions are for Ethan and the team at Placer AI, you can absolutely put those in the screen to the right. Uh, and we'll be doing a live chat throughout this entire conversation. That's right. And the other thing too that I want to call attention to is the great thing when we have Ethan on, we have absolutely no idea, Ann and I, what he's going to share with us. So you, the audience, are watching our reactions and our questions in real time, too. There's been no prep purposely for that because we want to keep this conversation, particularly with Ethan, as authentic as possible. Well, Ethan, let's start first by... Um... I, I feel like this is this doesn't make any sense at this point with that introduction. But if <laughs> if anyone has not met you and is not and is looking for a comfortable old pair of shoes that they can slip on, um, tell them a little bit about you and your background and what Placer is. Placer is a location data company. What that means very simply is uh, people vote with their feet. We show you how they vote across the United States every single day. We do that by observing a panel of tens of millions of mobile devices. Uh, utilizing machine learning and AI algorithms to uh, analyze those, that panel, and then make estimations on retail visits across the country and present that data in a wealth of different reports on everything from uh, the visitor journey, visit trends, true trade areas, and a whole lot more. And I do think the challenge for next time is I do the opening. Yes, then... I was just going to say that. Yes, I could. we could do yours too. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
That's what I'm looking forward well, to. Well, Ethan, explain though a little bit why it's so important. The the data that you gather is so important um, about in a way to provide insights for the topic at hand today, though. Yeah, absolutely. So I think I think so much of what we understand about the market is based off of kind of uh, estimations and gut instincts and narratives. And I think the really amazing thing about objective data is that it allows you to kind of check those narratives and understand what's true, what's real, what's not, uh, where it doesn't apply to you and where it does. And then kind of really hyper-focus in on how that, what that might look on a local level versus on a national level, how things are different in California than Washington state and kind of just slice and dice the country in order to understand how things are trending and how they might be impacting you as a retailer. Yeah. Or said another way, traffic data doesn't lie, you know, traffic, put yeah. traffic and basket. Those are really the two <laughs> fundamental, uh, you know, metrics in all of retail that empower, you know, how people perform and traffic data doesn't really lie. So, so, all right, well, let's not keep the audience in suspense any longer, Ethan. Yeah. I am dying to know. I know Anne is too. What is the number one question? And knowing you, you have more than five too, but but what is the number one question that is staring retailers in the face to start this year? The number one question is, what did we learn from and about the holidays in Ooh. 2023? Ooh, so we're going like to look back to look forward. And I'm, oh, okay. I'm, like I'm so that. happy this you is, came up with that question. This is a Wonka moment. This is, yeah. this is for sure. Going backward to look forward. Okay. Tell us more. I also love that movie so much, but the original. Um, <laughs> So I think, I think I think we learned like three important things. So I think we learned one that holidays matter a lot, even if they matter differently. I think we okay. learned two that different holidays matter more for different retailers. And I think that's kind of obvious, but the way in which they matter right. more, what that means from a strategy perspective is different. And the last thing, and this has become a bit of an obsession for me, is the idea of holiday stages. Okay. So okay. let's let's break each one of those down. Let's start with kind of the holidays matter a lot. Okay. So I think one of the, the dominant retail kind of narratives that everyone loves to bandy about is, oh, Black Friday isn't what it once was. And this is one of those great places from, from our perspective, when you look at the data, which is you say, okay, that, that's true. Black mm -hmm. Friday isn't what it once was. That doesn't mean it's not important or it's somehow lost its, its kind of status. It's just less relatively important. So when we look at the holiday season, we see things like Cyber Monday and we see the earlier holiday season and we see, you know, specific brand days. So like, you know, Target has has days in the middle. Walmart does as well. And those all kind of compete. And so we see it's essentially a lower relative peak for Black Friday, but still this massive surge in visits. And it, it's super important to, to say this because it, it flips the narrative around what we say about Black Friday. Because when we say something's in decline, the assumption is it's going away, and that's not the case. It's still hugely important. Mm -hmm. It's just you can't build around it as the end-all, be-all in a way that you might have been able to in the past. Mm -hmm. The second piece here is how different these dates play off for different retailers. And what's really interesting is how much that changes year to year depending on how the calendar is broken down. Mm -hmm. So this year, the day before Christmas was the most significant retail day for Target and Walmart in terms of visits. And that was fascinating to us. And one of the things we call it like our Turkey Wednesday lesson, right? Turkey mm -hmm. Wednesday, it's the day before Thanksgiving and it's the biggest day of the year for grocery visits. Mm -hmm. Right. If I am sitting there the day before Christmas and I realize, oh no, I don't have sheets. Uh-oh, I don't have this. Uh, I don't have enough milk. 
And oh shoot, I forgot that my you know cousin has a a boyfriend that he's bringing over, and therefore I need to buy a present for that person too. I need the place that's going to satisfy all of those things at once. And that privileges the places that are going to allow me to get that full shop done in one location. And so it's something we think brings a lot of value. And so if you're this, if you're the retailer that has it all under one roof, that, uh uh-oh, I don't have all the things I need moment is a really powerful opportunity. Whereas if I'm, you know, Best Buy, Mm -hmm. Black Friday is the dominant day. Like it's, it's going to see the biggest jump in visits. Nothing else is going to come close because it's a plan thought through purpose. It's not like that last minute for most people. And their hours, and their hours, Ethan, I was just going to say too, like when you think about Target and Walmart specifically, like the hours that they're open tend to skew later, right? Than most, or they're open more hours the day before that. So you're not getting the boyfriend lottery tickets, like scratch off (laughs) tickets for their, their gift. Uh, Absolutely. And I I think all of those things play into that advantage and helps you understand why are those peaks so significant on a day that you know you might not expect to be as big as you know right. you know black friday would be for target and walmart mm-hmm. but i think the last bit and this is almost my my kind of favorite element from the holiday mm-hmm. season is this idea of stages okay. and so we were talking to you know we were at nrf and we were talking to retailers and we were talking to them about the holiday season and we were having this conversation with them and the amount of yes exactly we were hearing from our retail customers was very very high and it was Essentially, this idea that the holiday season, especially as it extends out further and further, we can't view it as a homogenous thing. It is it is built up of very distinct stages that speak to very distinct elements of the customer base. So we think about that October period, early November. Mm-hmm. It's the planned customer. The, it's the, the messages, if you want this specific product, make sure you get it now so that you get it on time. It's very oriented to that person who's, who's ahead of the game in terms of that list and in terms of what they want to get out of it. And so the messaging isn't about, hey, you're going to get this so cheap, because that's not the primary motivation here. Mm-hmm. Then when we move into Black Friday, it's the deals, it's the experience, it's the the, the rush. And then there all of a sudden, the cost cutting plays a bigger role because that's what you're expecting from Black Friday. That's part of that, of that kind of, hey, the hustle and bustle and being a part of it. But then we move out kind of further and we think about like Cyber Monday and the online orientation. We think about that pre-Christmas rush, Super Saturday of like, Again, the, uh oh, I don't have a gift for this person. The, you know, maybe that person who played chicken and is looking to find the best possible deal on, on a product. But then even beyond the holiday, when we think about, especially the last two years where we had this extended period between Christmas and New Year's that falls out on weekdays, where it's about gift cards and returns and the upsell opportunity that comes with that. And when we think about how you can message and price and engage with customers differently during those stages, there's so many opportunities to maximize the value during each period by understanding the way the consumer, the way your consumer is thinking differently at each stage, and even understanding how are my sales different? Which types of products moved more in different periods? Did things change? And if you can make those types of correlations, there's gold to be found for years to come. That's really interesting to me from a, from the merchant perspective, you know, having done all the holiday planning umpteenth times, you know, throughout my career, like the part I never thought about until you just said it was, you know, bringing back what you're talking about with Best Buy and Black Friday, the saying like, you know, those are planned purchases, you know, for the most part, and that's going to drive the Black Friday volume to be a more significant portion of what they do. And so when you think about like we had when you had on last time talking about Amazon extending the holiday into October, that tells me or what I'm extrapolating from what you're saying, Ethan, and correct me if I'm wrong is 
yes, you have to start thinking about those types of things earlier in the season, those types of products, the, the really planned purchases, or even just the gifts that you're contemplating and really thinking hard about getting people. And you need to start overtly devoting your merchandising and your strategies to that probably in October now going forward and then seeing how that carries through the season and then adjusting from there. Is that right or what nuances did I miss? No, no, I think you're I think you're right. I'll give you I'll give you an actual example we were talking about with with the brand and they were they sold apparel and they were saying we have certain elements of our mix that we know are the hot items in a given year. And we want to push those items really hard in October and November because yeah. those are the people who are going to pay full price yeah. to get the thing that they want. And we're not going to be left over. We're not going to kind of play this game of chicken. We're going to make sure we maximize that product. And then there's other products that are more likely to move later on because there's people who kind of need to get something. And so they're less picky about what they're going to get or they're more oriented towards the deal. So it's the discount that's going to pull them in the door. And so I just think it's understanding that customer difference and it clearly doesn't work the same at every retailer, but understanding how it works within each specific case offers a tremendous amount of value. I think it'll be interesting to watch too, Ethan, how the retailers, we touched on this a little bit last time, but how retailers are looking at some of their guaranteed price um, for the duration of the holiday season too. Like we saw Walmart do a lot of that, Target do a lot of that when price they matching. kicked off their sales in October. Yeah, and just how that kind of folds into this strategy on various items, I'd imagine. Yeah, I think it's it's all about getting a read on 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 the I know obviously this season was so driven by value and we'll discuss that too, but you know what? Not every product is built the same. And so not every product needs to have this kind of fundamental guarantee, nor right. should it have that. Right. Right. The other part too, because you're juxtaposing Walmart and Target here too. The other part I start to think about in this is like, does the period between Black Friday and Christmas really start to become the pre-clearance strategy? Like, is that mm. what you're using that window of time mm. for? And is that why we also saw Target lean heavier into clearance marketing in their stores coming out of Christmas more so than they ever have before? And I wonder if that's an indication to how they perform during this season. Whereas, you know, who knows if Walmart you know, didn't need to take the same approach. It's hard to know until we know the financials, but you know, it makes me start to think that you go up front more, like you said, to promote the products you want to sell, but now you got to start thinking about early clearancing of the items as you go into the season more so than you ever have before, because you're extended on the front end. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, Ethan, let's go on to the next one. What else do you have for us? All right. Question number, number two. two. Number right. two. Number How two. big of an effect will value make in 2024. Mm, okay. Now, I I do think this is this is a huge question because there are, you know, there are some signs that maybe things are starting to improve a little bit and get a little bit better from an economic perspective. Uh, and there are obviously massive ramifications in terms of what it means for retailers. We just look at like holiday numbers. You saw that kind of home furnishings was down while, you know, certain segments like electronics were up and though even the ups didn't necessarily take into account inflation. And so were things as up as they we thought they were? And what about kind of we've seen the in tremendous performance for like affordable luxury. So self-care and, you know, coffee places and movie theaters all getting this kind of extended bump from this. Oh, this is somewhere where I can kind of like spend on like this treat yourself moment. And I think the question of how this is going to play out deep, how deep this will play out into the year is a huge one for retailers, because I think there's a lot who are like, 
holding out, hoping that at some point this is going to dissipate and we'll start seeing this rebound. And I think mm -hmm. home furnishings, home improvement is a great example of one of those spaces that really would love to see this start to be less of an issue. Because if you can push off a pay, uh, purchase like that, you're likely going to in a difficult economic environment. Mm -hmm. But there are others that I think are clearly less impacted by this. But I think the we will look back and have a clear, if, if we could have a crystal ball of how long this value orientation will last into 2024, we would already be able to tell uh, who is going to have a great year this year. And Ethan, how much is the purchase cycle a function of that too? Like you bring up the home improvement or the home furnishings category, I should say, not the home improvement, home furnishings category. Like, you know, you outfit your house for the pandemic. You're probably not going to need to re-up on that. But like, you know, your examples here are really interesting. You got, you know, Dutch Brothers coffee, donuts, those little indulgences that, yeah, I can have those as many times a week as I want. And it doesn't seem like that's slowing down. So, you know, what what's what's the interplay there? So I think clearly there was this pull forward of demand element. But I do think, I mean, when the most of the experts that that I have spoken to were already expecting that to start having less and less of an effect last year. So the, okay. and, uh, the assumption was it was going to have this short-term decrease after that significant high in 20 and 21. But we're in early 2024. The fact this is continuing to linger, I think, does raise some concern that it's more than just a pull forward of demand. And I think that's where the concern is. I think there is the interesting factor, and one of the reasons we love highlighting things like secondhand apparel is because yeah. of the view that needs to be, we think needs to be taken of value, right? And this is an idea that I'm, I'm absolutely stealing from Billy Taubman, who kind of brought this up on one of our webinars. And I thought it was, it was really interesting. But he, he made the argument that like luxury, part of the reason it's not being affected is, as much as you might expect it to be is because of secondhand apparel. So if, if I buy a $1,000 dress and then I sell said dress for $700, he's like, it wasn't a $1,000 dress, it was a $300 dress. Mm -hmm. He's like, and so secondhand, secondhand retail doesn't just give access to this market, but it changes the pricing of luxury. And so when you think about value, you think there's certain segments that you would expect to be more impacted that are less impacted and it's because of changes in the market like secondhand retail. Ethan, can you elaborate a little bit on what kind of secondhand apparel chains you're talking about with this data that we see on our screen? Visits up 8% and average visit per venue up 6.2%. Yeah, I so I don't remember the exact chains that we used here, okay. but it was it's 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 chains where you buy a product, you resell it into this other place. Got and it. so, and, and it was, it was consistent across the board and we looked at it across regions and we looked at it across different chains and wherever, by the way, even ones where we wouldn't consider our coverage of the chain enough to put them in a category like this, when right. we look at specific locations, we'd find the pattern holding in most cases, unless there was some kind of exaggerated reason why, or, or right. kind of confounding factor. But it was fairly consistent across the board that you saw this really significant upsurge there. And I think the power of that market brings extra power to the luxury market as well. Well, and, I mean, and Ethan, oh, I was just going to, one quick follow-up, Chris. Um, no, go ahead. Ethan, for, for when you talk about the luxury category, how are, how are retailers gathering that information? I mean, is a secondhand apparel store like the real real being considered in the luxury category or are we just talking direct like first time purchase luxury retailers so i'll go even more refined than that and we're not just talking about first time luxury we're actually okay. talking about what we would call like that 
upper tier of luxury. Yeah. And, okay. and again, stealing this idea from someone else. So it's, it's lesser. You know, I know this is going to shock you. I'm not a major luxury shopper, but it's, it's like it's it's the expensive luxury because yes. okay. it's it's that's where the difference in pricing that would have made that kind of notch below luxury attractive to an audience is less attractive because of the resale market for those who are willing to take part in it. Yeah, because the difference in cost right. becomes lost in the middle. Right. And it's just, look, is this going to apply to every single person? No. But I thought the idea that this individual had with running some of the largest luxury malls and most successful luxury malls in the country was right. so fascinating. Yeah, so it, interesting. It, it tells you that the way we, this kind of assumption of value equals cheap, it's not that linear in terms of an understanding. Right. Yeah. Well, value is very, yeah. Sorry, value is a really amorphous word at the end of the day. It's really hard. The other thing I was just going to point out was like, and you're looking at visits here, just to remind everyone, this is visits. So the 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 impact of inflation or pricing is kind of stripped out of this because it's just showing where the traffic is headed and, and potentially why. And that's what we're trying to understand here. So, all right, Ethan, let's do number three. Number three, how is the shopping center changing? Great question. And boy, do I have the... Okay. And, and you got a throwback wow. to uh you got one of chris's hometown malls in here really oh yeah oh yeah are you from cary north carolina no i'm from phoenix though i'm from phoenix <laughs> you knew that you knew that yeah i was just kidding <laughs> so i think there's two big changes that are happening in shopping centers that bear okay. that are extremely noteworthy for retail the first is the shift to mixed use and the second is the increasing focus on the concept of placemaking, right? So let's break both of those down. Mixed use is not, I mean, this isn't like a shocking idea. If I had a center that was, you know, heavily oriented towards retail, it now has a blurring of those lines. There's more health going on. There's more office involved. There's, you know, there might be a co-working space. The classic mix of tenants is getting shaken up by new people wanting to be involved, new players wanting to be involved in these top tier centers and less concerned about the traditional feeling of where they belong and where they don't belong. That has some really interesting implications. Hmm. Even let's say, take the most basic site selection perspective. If I have a dentist office in a center next to, I don't know, a, a, a Kohl's and a Ross, what does that mean if normally that would have been, you know, a retailer that I would say, hey, I, if I see these three retailers in a center, right. I know I want to be there. If it's not, you know, that Coles and a Ross, if it's a dental office and a co-working space, I kind of need to get creative about what is this, what does this mean from my perspective on the center? Is this actually somewhere I want to be? Could this be better for me? Could this be worse? Mm -hmm. It really changes that perspective and it forces um some really interesting questions of like, do I want to be around competitors? Do I actually feel like there's a better environment for me in, in places where it's it's a totally kind of less, uh, more retail barren landscape? Are there different right. types of, of tenants that are, that are better for me? So that's one piece. The second piece is this idea of placemaking. And I think it's fascinating. We see such interesting data around this. And we think of placemaking, the place we had classically heard about it was actually in the economic development world. So municipalities trying to say, how do I create areas where or cities, areas where people want to spend time, right? Events that will make you want to come to my city square, downtown area, you know, a concert somewhere. But I think it's coming to retail too. It's happening in, in major malls with, hey, how do I make a sitting area where you'll want to work for an hour after you've been shopping? But there's also this element of 
things like EV charging stations mm -hmm. in parking lots mm -hmm. or kind of these sitting areas and outdoor shopping centers. Um, something really interesting we saw is uh, 7-Elevens that have a car wash adjacent do significantly better in terms of visits than the nationwide average, right? Which is a really interesting, makes sense addition. Mm -hmm. But the EV charging station is a really cool concept because I don't know, if I'm a coffee place, and I know that someone has to stop their car for, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes to get, you know, a charge. That's a station I want to be in. And I want to advertise on that screen that's there and right. saying, hey, stopping for a charge, bring your coupon and get 50 cents off your, you know, your cup of joe. Like, this is a cool way of thinking about where I want to be based on the added opportunities that a shopping center is bringing me from things that have nothing to do with their tenancy. Right. That's such a great point too, Ethan. I mean, I think about, you know, just the opportunity that's there for the centers, for the retailers inside those centers, as EV charging becomes more common throughout the country to be able to use that as leverage to get people in the doors, whether they're, you know, they're taking care of some of the costs of the charge, or they're allowing people to apply that, you know, 20 minutes to 20 minutes of a, of discounts in the particular store outlet where they are. Like there, there is a lot of opportunity here that you're, you're showcasing in, in the, um, in the data that we're looking at here. Yeah. I, I think it's, I think it's, it's a really interesting concept that one creates lots of opportunities, but also, you know, for the, for the site selection professional, for professional, right. life has gotten more complicated. Yeah, mm -hmm. And I think that it, it creates more opportunity, but also creates more risk. Well, that was going to be my question, because as much as I want to get on the, the EV charging bandwagon, I don't think, you know, that that's right for every retail operation. You know, Agreed. I'm not going to want to take the 30 minutes of the charge and go into specific types of retail. So I'm curious, you know, what's your advice then on how, as the site selector, one should think through this? Are there is there a certain rubric that you're starting to see your patterns are starting to see develop that kind of indicate how one should approach this question? It, it depends on size and it depends on where. So okay. EV charging is if you're in a California based retailer and you have a large number of locations, you need to be thinking about what your interaction is with EV charging, right? It's much more prevalent in that state because of a lot of the incentive programs than it is elsewhere. I think other questions though really depend on on the retailer. And I think it, it does behoove them to ask, what are the things that create success for me? And I think one of the things that we've all, you know, what, site selection has always been a core use case for us. And one of the things that we very consistently find is that classic assumptions don't always apply in all places. And when we have retailers that say, hey, I'm not doing as well in state X as I normally do, even though I thought the demographics are basically the same. And it's because there are different factors that come into play into success in that area. There might be different tenants that actually are really good for you to be near than you would have classically assumed. There might be old assumptions or old interactions that weren't positive, but now actually are really good for you. I think things change and the need to have that finger on the pulse is so important. I know we've talked about this forever, but when we hear about like store closings and that kind of churn of locations, there's the element about that, which is, you know, oh, that's that's a really difficult thing. And it's always challenging because, you know, people are losing jobs, et cetera. But from a retail perspective, when that's guided by an optimization push, 
it's a very smart element. And we would always want to see some degree of, of kind of turnover in locations. Ethan, let's go to the next one. What do we have next? The next one is where will the big shifts settle? And I think the big shifts wow. are, are two. I think they are office and I think they are migration. And I will go so far as okay. to say that we are going to be able to call office by the end of this year. Call we office. What does that mean, will, call office? Up until this point, we have been in a series of, of fairly steady flux. Just when we thought things were plateauing at about things down 35%, they jumped another level and oh, all of a sudden it was about May and we saw this significant increase in visits to office. Mm -hmm. And it was about 5% difference in the nationwide level. So in some cities, this is more in other cities, it's less. But I think by the end of this year, we're going to see things recovered at about 75 to 80% of what they were pre-pandemic, which is going okay. to land somewhere in the three to four days mark. Okay. And that's going to put retailers and put restaurants who are well set up for that change in a good situation. And those who haven't yet adapted, you need to adapt and adapt quickly, because I think that's where we're going to end up seeing things. And we'll see that by the end of this year. And Ethan, uh, let me pause you for a second. What makes, what makes a retailer or a restaurant chain well adapted for that eventuality in your mind? Okay. So let's take, I'm a restaurant that sits in an office park and expects steady traffic to my restaurant between 12 and two Monday through Friday. If you are building on that, you are going to be in trouble because really? it's okay. not going to be there on Monday. It's not coming back it's enough. It's not going to be there on Friday. Okay. It will be there Tuesday through Thursday, most likely. But you need to have another strategy to augment what you're doing because you're going to get hit on those edges of the week. I think if you are a retailer that leaned hard into people working from home, or you're a cafe, let's stay with the restaurant space. You're a cafe that leaned hard into people who are working from home during that Monday and Friday, and you have deals that draw them in on the afternoon. That is amazing. If you're a grocery chain that has been really effective at giving users a good experience when they come in at 10 a.m. on a Monday, as opposed to 7 p.m. on a Wednesday night when they're on their way back from work, you have done a really good job and you're gonna benefit from that change. I think that's, that's what we mean by that. The yeah. other mix though is migration. And I think migration is, pretty settled. We're seeing a much flatter line in terms of the changes we're seeing. And we're seeing those areas that gain people during the pandemic kind of hold on to those gains. And those areas that lost take that hit, except where we had the kind of the seasonal. So I'm, I live in Chicago and then go down to Phoenix for the, for the winter. That Those changes are really significant. And I think that means if I'm a retailer or if I'm looking at retail, I think we need to understand a lot of the movement of retailers from suburb, from cities to suburbs or suburbs to cities or from certain areas to other areas of the country as a part of chasing their audience, not as some other third factor. Audiences moved, it's pretty clear where they went and retailers have been adjusting for the last year and they're going to continue to adjust. And I think we need to keep that in mind whenever we're understanding those changes. Which goes back to a little bit about what we talked about before, right, yeah. Anne? Yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah, just seeing like the, I think the shift too, even in in return to office behavior too. I mean, yes, you're in the office, but you know, people have grown accustomed to a little bit more flexibility in their day, and so 
to Ethan's point, I think making sure that you have, you're working on, on getting traffic into your, your QSR at different day parts and at flexible day parts and really making sure that you have a strategy. It sounds like in order to keep the, uh, that traffic makes, makes the most sense here, Ethan, is that what we're gathering from these? hundred percent. If you, yeah. you need to communicate effectively with, and you need to incentivize your consumer. And that could be great product and that could be great prices and that could be a great relationship. But if you don't focus on the consumer has more power, that power might be slightly diminished because they're coming in three to four days as opposed to one to two days, but it's, it's still significantly more than it was pre pandemic. Yeah. The other part it makes me think about too, which I think this one's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of funny, but not really when you get down to it, but like, there's probably people watching this where their leaders are saying to them, it'll come back. Just wait, it'll come back. And what you're saying is, if anyone's saying that to you, you know, you got another thing coming. So I don't know, hopefully that's not happening, but you never know. Some people hold on to the way things always worked and the way things they think always will be. So who knows, but all right, let's go to the number five, Ethan. All right, this is this is for me more than it is for the rest of retail. Because it's my, <laughs> this it, one's for you. I know as I pull up this the pop-up slide. <laughs> but, <Skims. laughs> My my favorite retailer. Um, everything I'm wearing today is by Skims, by the way. Um, it's agility. So I, I think our favorite thing to look at over the last year, year and a half has been the power of pop-ups. Things like the Hello Kitty cafe truck that would pop by and drive the value. The the things like the you know, Shein pop-up or the Skims pop-up. And there was, you know, so many other examples. You know, I'm forgetting the Netflix show. Scary Netflix. Stranger show. Things. Oh, Stranger, Stranger yeah, Things. Yeah. The Stranger yeah. Things pop up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> these are really significant. They matter for retail. They matter a lot, and they're very good for everybody. They are good for the consumer. They make things mm -hmm. interesting. They give us a reason to go out. They're good for the landlord. They create urgency. They create some mm -hmm. some some change and some dynamism in the in these spaces. And they're good for the retailers because they give other reasons for people to visit that you can latch onto. And it's things that you know are going to happen. So you can try to tap into it. So I think there are so many values to this. I hope it's something we see continue. I think it, it creates so much creativity and excitement in the retail landscape. And our, our hope is that more people embrace it and it becomes a bigger piece of the puzzle. I think it's going to be inevitably, we think about things of like more flexible leases that are being playing a bigger role in the retail real estate landscape. Uh, this is something that I think is going to have a major impact or at the very least, we hope will have a major impact. Well, and I think stresses the importance too for the retailers and brands listening of not just making sure that you have your leases that are flexible, but also if this is really driving the traffic that we're seeing here, significant traffic, uh, that they're going to have to have the rest of their retail operations be as flexible mm. uh, as possible to support this, like mobile checkout or, you know, a point of sale system that can be popped up in one location versus another. Like there's so much of this that um, it, item data accuracy and knowing how much product you can sell through in one of these locations um, so just things, a few things like that, that come to mind too, as you're thinking about, okay, brands, like if this is the, if this is what you're going to go for, this is where you're going to see the most success. If they can yeah. follow in Skims' footsteps, this is a place where you're going to have to yeah, that's really pretty part, heavily yeah. invest in. Yeah. Well, think about staffing. 
Like right. there was my right. the, the one of the coolest images, and I, I forget the exact date when this happened. When that Mr. Beast Burger launched in the American mm -hmm. Dream, and you saw a packed mall. Yeah, right. Nobody was ready for that. Right. And yet it was this like earth shattering moment that says, if you were a little bit more prepared, a lot of good things happened to you that day. Yeah. When I think of I think of this slide actually is just a, the juxtaposition of the first question that we raised where we looked at the holiday patterns right this is just from the point of view of the mall operator where the mall operator's job is to do the same thing which is to merchandise their mall mm -hmm. the best they can throughout the year and so that is having great content like a skims pop-up but then to answer your point also providing the infrastructure to enable those things to happen more frequently and as often as necessary and that's their job and so that's how that's how I look at that slide. Right. Um, and because I think it is, it's their job to merchandise their malls as best they can with the things that are creative and new and bring in the traffic, whether it's Mr. Beast or Kim Kardashian shapewear. <laughs> Which yeah, is amazing, exactly. by the way. I, I'm Ooh, not surprised. <laughs> I'm not surprised that we're seeing this. It's hard to come by. It's only at Nordstrom or online. And that's not, that's not a purchase that's easy to make online. So this makes a yeah. ton of sense. So follow the skims. If if Skims is going to be there, it's Ann's probably a, big a good spot. evangelist right now. Wow, right. I'm battling Ann for the who gets the Skims influencer role. <laughs> right, right, like right. it's the only shapewear for me. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't care if it's at Nordstrom's; I'll get it anyway. Yes. Um, all right, Ethan. Rap, you you said you were going over the the five here. You always do. I only went over by one. By one. I'll all keep right. it tight. So you got six for us today. But it's who will surprise, Ooh. right? Because mm. that we all want to know. I have, sadly this year, is not in my want. I have a negative surprise. Wow, that's different for you. I know. And it's- I was it's, watching it's for a, the first time. He's always optimistic. He's never, never takes this bend. What, okay, what is it? I think AMC is gonna have a rough year. Oh, And okay. I, was, yeah. I was so bullish on AMC and I yeah. thought they were doing so well and so many things right. And I think they did make huge gains last year, but I think there's going to be a lack of content. I think the content is not going to match what it did last year. Just the buzziness of what we saw. The issues we know they're going to come because of the writer's strike and the delays that are going to hit. Right. And That's then, a great point, too. And then the fact that while they made huge gains in terms of content and getting the right things in the right place and having that stellar year in 2023, they still haven't upgraded the experience enough. And they're, they're doing it. These theater chains are, are in making those investments, but it hasn't caught up yet where it can balance out. And so I think we're going to see, unfortunately, a step back for theaters this year. And uh, and that's my unfortunate surprise for 2024. Well, it you I think it brings back something else you were talking about earlier, Ethan, too, for the, the strip center owners and mall owners. You're going to have to focus, if you're AMC, on figuring out how to program that space. If it's if you're lacking the yeah. content, which like you talked about, we know is going to happen as a result of the writer's strike, what are you doing to be agile and flexible like the QSRs or like the mall operators too that you talked about to make sure that you're still getting people in the doors or how to like revamp that experience, whether it's showing old films and doing more activations around it. Um, like we saw, you know, with the Taylor Swift and Beyonce videos mm. too, where, or Barbie, where it's like, it's an event and how do you make it, make it that um, I, I totally agree. I think, I think you're nailing it on the head of like, but I think there's, there's two layers to this. Yeah. One is 
as the retailer or the shopping center owner, we you need to think short term, local. How do we how do we make the best out of a challenging situation? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's incumbent upon the rest of us to remember that it's a challenging situation. And we have this tendency to uh, ride the highs and say, oh my God, this is the greatest thing ever. Everything they do is genius. Right. And then the lows be like, everyone at this company makes terrible decisions all the time. And it's usually neither of those things. A lot of it is tailwinds and who's in the right setup for that year. And I think the more we remind ourselves of that, the more we're like, hey, this company that then bounces back so strong in 2025, it's not a shock. It's that, you know, the stars kind of aligned again, not there was something fundamentally missing or that those kind of fundamental challenges were being worked on over time. Yeah, that's the point I that I came came up for me is like, you know, you look at the movie theater business, there's a form factor issue there too. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, can you ever compete on content anymore when right. the content you're competing against is on your phone and available ubiquitously all the time? And so I go back to something you said, of, you know, 20 minutes ago, which was sometimes it just might make sense to start divesting or shutting these down and regrouping too. So that's the other point that I think has to be brought up here in, in terms of this discussion, in terms of what the mall operator does with that space more of a longer term play, like you said, but short term, you got to focus on what you can, but longer term, you start to look in that direction. So it's, so it's interesting. This is a conversation we've had a lot over the last few years, especially at the height of the pandemic. And it's, it's what would you do with theaters? And I think theaters have yeah. a few challenges. One is a content problem. Mm-hmm. But we saw last year that if the right content is there, mm-hmm. things, can, things can pop. And it could be, a, again, a Taylor Swift, a movie about the show right. that she did. Like, right. Yeah, I know that that it, it seems so obvious in retrospect, but if you would have said at the beginning of the year, you know, it's going to be the top movie event, I'm like, <laughs> you know, beyond Barbie, these things are not a given. I think sometimes it happens, so we're like, it's obvious, but it, it it wouldn't have been obvious to us. Even Oppenheimer, and like, and I'm the biggest Christopher Nolan fan that that there is, but it's a movie about a scientist. I'm like, oh yeah, obviously that's going to get everyone out of their out of their homes to go to go see a film. But there's the content issue one. And then there's the experience issue. Like, mm-hmm. how is it? It's got to be really interesting either to see in a crowd or it's got to be really exciting to be there. Right. And I think that being a crowd part, we figured out to an extent which content works. And that's the the Barbies and the the Oppenheimers and the, you know, Taylor Swift, Beyonce tour movies. But then that element of how do I make it so that I want to go there for anything? That's the missing piece right now. Well, Ethan, oh, go ahead, Chris. And no, I was gonna say, Anne called the Taylor Swift thing. You know, she yeah. called she called her shot on that well before it happened. Yes, yeah, she did. Like, I'm I, kudos to Anne for calling her shot that that would be as successful as it was. But I uh, mean, just want to put it, that out to the Skims people that yes. she's big on the Taylor Swift <laughs> side. Yeah, she, I don't have such she's an. A, she's on everything these days, Ethan. Sorry, uh, well, you know, it's that uh, it's that that uh, billion dollar revenue year for Taylor Swift was kind of a good hot tip to kind of make that assessment, Chris. So thank you. But uh, a lot of leading indicators. Yeah. Um, So Ethan, we've covered Taylor Swift, Beyonce. um, We've covered the five things that retailers can expect for 2024, but are there any other big questions that didn't make your top five, six, five and a half ish, we'll say uh, that you want to share in closing with the audience? I mean, for me, like, I, I think this, I, I really go back to like, when are things going to turn? Mm-hmm. And that's like the one that I think when we're, when we're mm-hmm. sitting with our analyst team, 
we're having this ongoing discussion because there were those who thought it was going to be late last year. There's some who had always said it was going to be at some point mid this year. And so that kind of dart throw about where that turning point will be, where things start to feel, we start going from this wider economic uncertainty narrative yeah. to something stronger. Yeah. That's the biggest question. That kind of yeah. all other questions, you know, pale in comparison to that one. Yeah. And in what direction too? I don't think sure. we know that yet either, sure. right? I mean, that's, that's kind of right. that's kind of what just jumped into my head there. We don't really know that still. So it's kind of crazy. Oh, whoa. Ending negative. That's, uh, that's <laughs> no, ending right down the middle, Ethan. It could go either way. <laughs> well, Ethan, thank you so much for taking the time to take Chris and I through this and everyone who's been following along on LinkedIn Live always amazing and very insightful. If people want to get in touch with you, they want to learn more about Placer, they want help gathering insights like this to drive their business, what is the best way for them to do that? Uh, to learn about Placer, head to placer.ai. We have a free version of our product. You can request a demo of the full version. We'd love to speak with you if you're interested in getting in touch with me. I, my name is Ethan Chernovsky on LinkedIn. There's not much competition for the name. And uh, <laughs> Ethan at placer.ai. Excellent. That wraps us up. Thank you so much, Ethan Chernofsky of Placer AI for sitting down with us today. Thanks to all of you that have joined us on uh, joined us on LinkedIn Live that are following along later. And as always, on behalf of all of us here at Omnitalk, be careful out there.